Welcome to Godpod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, hello, and welcome again to Godpod. And uh, so today we have... Uh, our three usual suspects, which is myself, Graham Tomlin, and uh, Jane Williams. Morning, Graham. Morning, Jane, who's suffering from a bit of a cold, isn't yes, that right? I'm sorry, so I shall sniffle and sneeze all through this. Uh, we also have Mike Lloyd. Uh, we do. I'm afraid. Good morning, yes. Mike. Good morning to you, Graham. Good morning. Moving right And uh, we also have a special guest this morning who is uh, Nick Spencer. Hello. Good morning, Nick. And uh, Nick works for um, a new think tank, which is. Um, uh, been launched recently in the whole area of public theology, which That's is right. called Theos. That's right. On today's Godpod, we are looking at some issues of the way Christian faith impacts public life. And in particular, we're looking at the issues of immigration and uh, just war. Is it right for Christians to go to war? Uh, can there ever be a good war within the Christian view of the world? So, um, Nick, do you want to tell us a little bit about that um, that work and what yep. you do and yep. what it's ha- trying to do. Happily, Theos was launched in November 2006 and it was originally set up and has received start-up funding from the Bible Society. Um, and it's there really to put a, a kind of considered, thoughtful Christian perspective on major social, political, economic issues. Mm. It does the kind of thing that most think, tank, think tanks do really. So you know, if you take the model of the IEA, the Institute for Economic Affairs, that was there in a sense to put a uh, very particular free market view pervaded mm. through the political mind and then sort of IPPR and Demos did the same thing with, with the third way back in the 90s and, and Theos ambitiously seeks to do mm. a similar thing with regards public theology. Christianity in the public square. And how have you found that being received? Because I guess um, the perception is that in the public square, Christian voices and Christian faith is not really listened to terribly closely. Oh, there's so many different kinds of reception. You get the, the classic, you know, render unto God and unto Caesar reception, which is, you know, well, you shouldn't be doing this really. You know, mm. faith is an entirely private thing. Then you get the kind of knee-jerk reaction, this is the last thing we need, another bunch of bigots in the public square. Mm. But, by and large, people do listen. They don't necessarily listen to what you have to say, mm-hmm. and they sometimes listen to what they want to hear. Yep. So that the initial report, Doing God, that I wrote to launch it last November, was deliberately written in as conciliatory style as possible. And yet the story picked up by the press was that archbishops, because Rowan Williams and Cormac, Cardinal Cormac, both um, wrote the foreword, the story picked up by the by the papers was the archbishops back new think tank to take the fight to secularists <laughs> and really yeah. I, we have no interest in taking the fight to secularists because it's a pretty sterile debate mm-hmm. but people do listen and what's your particular area within that do you have a particular you say you wrote the opening kind of uh, sorty yes that's um, right but uh what's your particular area well, my background is in, uh, originally in social and market research. I read, I read um, history and English at the college at which Graham was chaplain um, quite a few years ago. Many years ago. Yeah, that's that's right. Back in, yes, I did. I did. Well, he didn't teach me, so oh, I was, I was okay. okay. That's why I survived. I read history and English, which was very interesting, but prepared me for precisely nothing in the real world. So I kind of stumbled into market and social research that in the commercial and business sector for a while. Then worked for the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity in the Jubilee Centre, again as a social researcher, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm doing that 
in, in Theos. My specific role is director of studies, so it's my role to kind of commission and write and edit our reports. So you have to get a few facts to support the views. You do. You do. Yeah, one or two. You can make up the rest of it, Obviously, but one or two. Yeah. yeah just to and do you go out and um, proactively decide what are the issues that the public square should be thinking about in Christian terms, or do you react to what is going on in the news? A little bit of both, really. I mean, you've got to react to some extent, um, but I don't think you can entirely react because otherwise you're dancing to other people's agendas. Yeah. So I guess we would try to be more reactive in shorter think pieces, as it were, but more proactive when commissioning longer reports. So tell us one that you've had to react to recently. Well, um, I was um, asked to write a piece in response to, I'm just for a short piece, in response to the government's recent um, proposal that they will be introducing an Australia-style points-based system to admit immigrants um, into the UK, starting or coming in on different tiers beginning next year, I think, 2008. And just write a short piece in terms of, you know, is that ethical? Is that right? Should we approve of it? Should we hmm. throw our hands in the air and saying this is barbarous and utilitarian? Is that what you said? No, 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 no. no. Right. What I, was I your mean, conclusion then? Oh, goodness. Um, well, my, my initial response is to, to acknowledge that when you first hear this, certainly when I first hear this, I get very, very nervous. It sounds very instrumentalist. It sounds so the idea is that, that um, immigrants are, are, have to put down qualifications they bring to a new country and people are allowed in Basically, who are more talented yeah. than those who are less you, talented. You, is that if right? You, if you have um, particularly graduate qualifications, language mm. skills, mm. other um, professional qualifications, general aptitude, mm -hmm. um, particularly in sectors in which there is a dearth of good mm. employees you are more likely to be rated higher to achieve a higher tier and therefore more likely to be admitted um, lower skilled blue collar etc 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 are less likely so you know, superficially it seems extremely calculating mm. really mm -hmm. um, but I argue that um, perhaps controversially that I think it it could by no means a proven case, but it could be, I think, an ethical way of going about it. And what, what is interesting to me about this particular issue is that it forces on us the question of what are the, as it were, the ethical imperatives placed upon an individual, a Christian individual, mm -hmm. or a Christian church, or a state. Mm -hmm. And they're not the same. So whereas a Christian, a Christian individual in the church may have a particular ethical imperative towards hospitality and forgiveness mm -hmm. and generosity... Um, a state, I, I would argue, it would have some of those imp imperatives placed on them, but not to the same extent. Hmm. Certainly not to the extent, as it were, to opening up your house to all comers. So that would mean you would argue for some degree of limiting of, of, of immigration and therefore some process of selection. Um, I think I would, actually. Yeah. I think I would. I mean, I, I, I find it slightly uncomfortable. Anybody who advocates that position finds it slightly uncomfortable because, yeah. as someone once said to me, that's the barking BNP position. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it does mean that the Christian individual or Christian household or Christian church that wants to offer hospitality and protection to, say, Iraqi Christians fleeing from massacre will not be offered that opportunity unless the, so the Iraqi Christians happen to have... No. It doesn't mm. mean that because there is a significant difference between immigration and asylum. Right. And I say right mm. at the beginning that sure. this legislation doesn't affect asylum application at all. To calculate the validity of offering someone asylum according to their usefulness is immoral, right. out mm. and outright. Okay. Mm. Um, this is immigration as an open, free and informed choice. Mm. It's, it, it's a bit like the kind of health service debate, isn't it, where there used to be this um, thing of the quality 
which was a unit of uh, usefulness whereby you determine who got treatment um, in pri- had a priority in treatment on the basis of uh, the quality. And the quality was, I think, the amount of benefit to the person times the number of years that they've got left. And therefore, it always <laughs> militated against uh, the elderly, yeah. doing anything for the elderly. It, may be, it might radically transform their quality of life, but they've only got you know, five years left, so they don't qualify. Are there in similar dangers in, in the kind of approach that you're absolutely the are. government is taking? Uh, absolutely are. Who says what is of value yeah. at the end mm. of the day? That, that mm. is the critical thing. Australia has an interesting situation, similar thing. You know, admit graduates, white-collar workers, a dearth of hairdressers, I learned. Can't get good hairdressers well, in, Australia. in Australia, apparently. But I mean, it does show in their haircuts, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I know. Do you watch Neighbours a lot, Graham? I do rather. Yeah. Well, my family does, and I'm shocked by the hairstyles. That's why I don't l- l- listen to it too much. But it's also interesting. It. I mean, I, I remember in, in South Wales where we lived, there was a... Um, a woman who was in the, the, the newspaper sort of bugbear. She was a single parent with three children, didn't work. And the entire community utterly depended on her because she was a school governor. She she was the person that you always rang up if you were at work and your child was taken ill um, because she had time and and mm. and mm. was prepared to serve the community. And, and so how you measure how people are valuable yep. is a really yep. tricky yep. question. Yep. Yep. I think the other thing that I, th- I think about this issue is not just its effect upon our culture here in the UK and, and what um, such people might bring to uh, our society. It's the effect it has upon the countries from which they come because I think I think I do worry about a system which actually bleeds talent from some of the countries that desperately need those uh, to bring them to a country that relatively speaking is, is, is fairly well off in terms of talent and ability and, and people with graduate qualifications and so on now it's a difficult thing to say because for the individual concerned it's all right for me i live in the uk i have a nice standard of living and it's very difficult for me to say well you can't come here and share that standard of living because you're from another country but there's something slightly um something slightly wrong about a system where we are effectively encouraging the the cream of 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 countries that desperately need doctors and politicians and business people and uh, and all the rest of it um, to actually en- encourage them to come here to make their fortune rather than actually to serve in the countries that they've come from in the first place. So that's one of the yeah. anxieties I have. And, and it's a very live problem. Ghana is a, is a, is a, is a great example which loses mm. a very high proportion of yeah. graduates to... Um, you know, to Western nations, to high-income nations, and, and mm. they said, you know, we have a, a largely free education system here. What's the point? We don't get any uh, as much benefit from it yeah. as, as as we should do. But you have to bear in mind, of course, that you know these people who you know are educated to graduate level in Ghana and then fly over to the US or the UK to earn lots more money are making a free choice. The alternative mm. is you're advocating a system in which you, know, you could argue you are denying those people mm-hmm. the opportunity to maximize or well, a their skills and b mm. more realistically their income earning potential mm. so either way you, you you hit some ethical buffers sure but in which that raises the question well, why not just have let market forces determine who comes who, why have why have controls well i think because in the long run the degree of social harmony domestically and mm. very possibly internationally would be damaged 
because of it. Mm. If you leave things to market forces, the rich will get very much richer and the poor will get very much poorer. Mm. I mean, history has shown that many, many times. No government is going to get elected that says it's going to leave immigration to market forces, pragmatically speaking. (laughs) But we can actually see why we need Theos, if you're going to be provoking this kind of discussion. I think the other interesting thing, I think, about the immigration debate is often it's set in terms of maintaining the Christian identity of of Britain. And, you know, you hear the point being made that if we allow unfettered immigration, that's somehow going to undermine the kind of English-British nature of society. And part of that is the kind of Christian heritage of uh, of the um, of the nation and so on. Um, although it, that's, that argument seems to me slightly spurious, because I think if there's any threat to the Christian identity of, of Britain, it's actually from within, not from without. And in fact... You could argue. Away. Well, exactly. You could well, argue British that the people coming and going to church. And that's right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you, you could argue that you know that the churches that are growing phenomenally within the UK are the black majority churches, ethnic churches, not indigenous white churches, and, and therefore the actually to encourage yeah. poles and Ghanaians and everybody else to come here to bring their Christian faith actually enriches the the Christian yeah. heritage of of, yeah. of the country, and arguably is the, is the only hope we have to <laughs> to keep. Um, I mean, I have to say, just coming back on that, I, I haven't, in, in stuff I've read on it, I've rarely heard the argument that immigration like that will um, cause the Christian heritage and Christian culture of this country to um, to come apart at the seams or, 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 or to be kind of reduced. Um, I think people are very nervous about making that argument now for all sorts of actually quite good reasons. Mm. But it does mean they're left scratching around uh, trying to find what actually is the intrinsic mm. cultural values mm. Mm. that we wish to preserve because historically it's been christian yeah. end of story and that you can argue with that's a good or a, or a bad thing but it's a, it's a fact yeah. if you can't draw on that at least overtly mm. you know you are left and gordon brown has, has you know, written on this and the, the reason i mention it is because our next report is on gordon brown's attitude towards citizenship and patriotism as a role of building up civil society and he you know thought very kind of i think profoundly and, and perceptive perceptively on this but he still comes up with values of fairness and responsibility and freedom, which most mm. people would countersign. Mm. But I'm not sure are quintessentially British mm. in any way. Yeah, what is quintessentially British is that we think we have a monopoly of those qualities. <laughs> Fair play. <laughs> Cricket. That's what it is. Right. <laughs> um, just to go back to the kind of the immigration thing for, for a moment, um, I gather that one of the things that uh, the Nazi Party... Um, did to try to prepare the ground for the final solution was to introduce a maths syllabus which had questions like it costs so much um, to keep an old person in an old people's home and so much to give a flat to young people how many flats for young people could we provide if we were not uh, (laughs) keeping X number of elderly people in, in a nursing home um, which is a way of reducing ethical absolutes, really, and saying, oh, it's just a matter of playing with uh, numbers. numbers. Uh, is there another danger with that, with the immigration thing, that one's saying, you know, uh, you, can, you can make a, a kind of mathematical equation out of this and, and weigh out what people's value is and uh, make judgments accordingly? There is. There is. I, I, I wrote a, a book on asylum immigration a couple of years ago from, from a Christian perspective. And very early on, you came across the unpalatable sense that whichever direction you turn in, you're going to do something which is, 
you know you are, you are uncomfortable with mm. now that is absolutely right our earlier conversation who judged what is worth and what isn't mm. worth followed by that point how do you measure goodness me it's difficult to judge how do you measure yep. somebody's worth now the way it's currently going is effectively economic benefit but that is spurious mm. to my mind in, in in all sorts of ways yes. you know your example of the individual in, in, in south wales who economically wouldn't have qualified according to these regulations but mm. in terms of mm. the social cohesion they afforded mm. society massively beneficial which i think is also the i guess behind the point i'm trying to make about the sort of christian immigrants to this country um that again, it raises the question of, you know, what, what, what are we looking for from people who come into this country? And how do you make those decisions? If we're not going to say anybody who wants to can come, um, what are the particular things that will, that people will bring to, to this society that will enhance it and strengthen it and so on? And there's no doubt that, that the immigrant population has, has done that immeasurably for, for, for years. But it's a very interesting question as to what, what those things are. And as you say, we're thinking at the moment, education, um, possibility to, um, we're thinking about you know people's qualifications in, in, in educational terms, but are those the right qualifications? Are those the things that actually will build uh, a, a strong and cohesive and, and functioning society, um, or is it other things that we that we look for and that ought to be on that list? And part of the problem is that we don't ask the basic question, which is what kind of a society do we want to be. Mm. Um, which is I, I realise a hugely unanswerable question. But it's interesting that you can you can keep tinkering with the things on the surface, mm. and unless you actually ask yeah. what is a society and what kind of a society mm. do we want to be and how do we get there, mm. there's no point in in mm. having quotas for immigration. But that's quite hard to do when you have a society that doesn't really have a common story, a Absolutely. common set of, of of values, other than rather bland things like fairness and, Which and is why yeah. we resort to economics. Everything else. Yeah. Everyone wants to be richer rather than poorer. That's yep. the one thing we can all agree on. But when it comes to anything more substantive relating to the public good, mm. there's so many diverse opinions. That yeah. governments run shy of pronouncing yeah. and of course the economic thing and the educational thing are easily measurable whereas the sort of things that we would probably see as more quintessentially human than either of those like relational ability mm. uh, and wisdom mm. and things like that are much more difficult mm. to measure mm. um, but I don't know whether you've looked at how you kind of what criteria you use when you've been doing your research on that? Well, again, it depends in the sense what your objectives are. I mean, a classic one is, is I mean, social capital or civil society or social cohesion, different different terms are used. And that's effectively the kind of the bonds and the links between people of different ages, ethnic groups, sexes, backgrounds, who are co-locating effectively. So it is, it is the opposite of the ghetto mentality, really. And... You know, you can get some idea of that by levels of volunteering, by levels of um, uh, of association, by just the the, the, the richness of uh, immediate civil society. Mm. But it's a tremendously laborious and kind of um, rough way of measuring things. You mm. know, doing quantitative surveys in terms of how much, how many hours you spend volunteering, how much time, how much money do you spend giving to local community groups, that kind of thing. Well, that's been very interesting to talk about that whole immigration issue. I mean, how can people get hold of your report that's coming out? Uh, well, this isn't a report. Well, the, 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 the article with which we originally started is in Faithworks magazine, which is being launched, I think, in a couple of months' time. Mm -hmm. And the report I talked about, it will be about primarily, but not exclusively, about our probable new Prime Minister's attitude <laughs> towards <laughs> patriotism and civil society 
and where he's gone right and where he is perhaps not quite so right in terms mm. of his attitudes and that that'll be coming okay. out sometime in the summer. Great. Well, the um, other issue that we wanted to deal with today was uh, from an email that came in um, from Jerry. And uh, it was, uh, the email just simply says this, it would be great if you could address some of these questions such as, is it right for Christians to bear arms, to fight on the front line, to take life? And are those kind of things... Um, uh, well, is there such a thing as a just war for a Christian? And um, particularly, uh, the questioner has in mind the Iraq war and uh, issues around that. And um, so we thought that would be quite a useful one to just about around for a little bit, especially with Nick nice present one, here one as well. One controversial one to finish <laughs> off with. <laughs> exactly, that's right. But you're not interested in being non-controversial, otherwise you wouldn't have helped to launch Theos, would you? No, although, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, the... One wants to be, in a sense, controversial enough to be interesting, but not so controversial enough as to be hysterical. Mm. You see what I mean? Yeah. It's a line to yeah. tread. So just war. I mean, there is a obviously a Christian tradition of just war theory, which lays down certain uh, qualifications that a war has to meet in order to be uh, deemed just. And I suppose Christian thinkers, by and large, have Oh, probably the majority, I guess, have, have tended to say, well, there, there is such a thing as just war. Wars can be just. But, of course, alongside that, there's quite a strong pacifist tradition within Christian theology and Christian history. Um, but I guess just war thinkers have tended to say that there are certain things that a war needs to, to be able to, 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 to meet. So, for example, um, that it's directed at uh, combatants, not innocent um, victims, it's backed by appropriate authority, that the outcome, or the good outcome is achievable, um, that the force that's used is proportional to the uh, problem it's trying to address, those kinds of things. So that's that's really the just war tradition, I suppose, that's being referred to in this, this question. But I guess uh, I think it'd be interesting to find out around the table what, what we think, whether there is, can be such a thing as a just war. Uh, or actually whether we think that um, that whole just war tradition is justifying something which is fundamentally unchristian. Could we imagine Jesus fighting a just war? A war of any kind? Well, picking up with that one, I mean, in a sense, I can, to my mind, I can pick off the easy ones. Can I imagine Jesus bearing the sword? No. Can I imagine St. Paul bearing the sword? No. Can oh, I, I don't know about St. Paul. <laughs> I know, personally, personally. Can I imagine him advocating yeah. that the state has a role to bear the sword in the right circumstances? Well, of course, of course I can. He pretty, pretty much says so. But then you're faced with mm. the question, as of course the church was in particularly in the fourth century, okay, what happens when the two come together and you have Christians mm. in, in the army? To my mind, I can't square that circle. But I'm also conscious of the fact that I live in peace and security because there are other people who are prepared to bear the sword on my behalf. So in a sense, I find myself in the uncomfortable position of wanting to have the pacifist cake and eat it as well. That metaphor kind of breaks down, there, doesn't it? <laughs> pacifist cake, I wonder what that tastes like. <laughs> Being prepared to, in a sense, advocate yeah. a pacifist position mm -hmm. as long as other people are prepared to do the mm. killing so that I may live in safety. I mean, one of the ways in which I suppose that's been dealt with historically is through the kind of Lutheran tradition, and, and Luther has this idea of the two kingdoms, where um, he sort of—it's a kind of development of Augustine's idea of the city of God and the city of this world. Um, and, and Luther's idea, effectively, 
says that you know that there are two kingdoms two you know, there's the kingdom of god where god has his way and there's the kingdom of satan the kingdom of this world which where where everything's chaotic and these two things live alongside one another within within the world and therefore god rules the world in two different ways um he rules the world through the gospel on the one hand which is primarily for those who have who are obedient to Christ, who are filled with the Spirit, who obey the law naturally out of their own hearts. They don't need to be told what's right. They just do it naturally because um, that's, you know, God inspires them to do that. Uh, but also God, you know, there is the other kingdom uh, of people who are not obedient to Christ and who, who are not um, filled with the Spirit and so on, who Luther says, and this is, he does talk in rather sort of bold terms, um, who do not necessarily obey the law from the heart and, and therefore they need to be ruled by the sword. Um, but he also says, you know, by, by the sword, by kind of civil government, by rules, by punishment and all of that. So one lot will obey the law naturally because they, they don't have to be told to. The other lot do need to be told to and that's where law, government, um, punishment and and state warfare come comes in, um, and also out of that, I think he he says that that a, a particular individual can act in either one or the two spheres as a private individual. Um, we are he seems to suggest we are called to a kind of pacifist approach as private individuals, as private Christians. We don't um, return evil for evil. We um, you know we someone strikes you on the cheek, you you don't fight back. Um, but as a, in a civic position, say if you happen to be appointed as a judge or a magistrate, then it's your responsibility to look after the rights of others. So that, you know, if someone attacks me as an individual, I'm not to fight back. But if someone is to attack someone else, my job as a magistrate or a judge is to make sure that justice is done and that the evil is punished and, and, and the order of society is maintained. So that's one of the ways I think that Christians have, have addressed this whole thing, the dilemma that you talk of. But, um, but it still leaves that nub, doesn't it, in terms of, okay, should I volunteer myself to be a magistrate or member of the armed forces? Well, Luther would say yes, definitely. Because you're a member of that society. Yeah. But, e but you e act even if e even if I mean, but surely there's a line to cross. I mean, surely there are there are there are positions, as, mm. even as members of that society, in which the social mores by which you are deemed to live or you should mm. live mm. become unacceptable according to your Christian faith. I think that's right. I think it depends largely on what you think of the government that you'd be representing uh, and one of the I mean pacifists always point to the fact that Christians in the first few centuries tended not to serve in the army uh, and then after Constantine they did and say look there was a kind of um, losing sight of the original pacifist vision of Jesus uh, and it finally got lost under Constantine and, and we all started thinking that fighting was okay and warfare was alright and that just war was, was possible uh, and therefore you know, we should be true to our original roots and be pacifists. But what that ignores is the fact that of course <laughs> the army in those early centuries was a pagan empire and a pagan empire that was ruthlessly controlling uh, the known world after Constantine, Christian has had some input into that empire. They saw it as a more kind of Christian-friendly um, institution. Um, and therefore, it's a very different thing to be seen mm. as a representative of it and to be fighting on its mm. behalf mm. than it would have been in the early centuries. Um, and I think it's the same now. You know, If you are in Burma, for instance, as a Christian, um, fighting in 
the, the armed forces, it's a different thing than if you're in Britain. You've got to make some kind of judgment about the kind of mm. government that you'd be representing and fighting for. Mm. There's a lot of very interesting and nuanced thinking um, during the Second World War, obviously, by Christian leaders about about all of this. And, and one of the most interesting, I think, is William Temple, who was briefly Archbishop of Canterbury during the Second World War and had a lot of letters from people saying, should Christians fight. S- fight and should they support blanket bombing and so on? And Temple was always perfectly clear that war is always bad, always mm. bad, but there are some things that are worse. And that was his argument about mm. Nazism. Nazism is worse than war. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. But he did also say... Um, we must be very careful the way in which we wage war so that um, uh, it isn't acceptable to do absolutely anything in mm. order to win a war mm. uh, because you will then, actually, if what you're fighting for is a better moral world after a war, mm. you need to make sure that that is actually going to be an achievable outcome. Mm. Mm. And, and there the, <coughs> the bombing of Dresden and all that sort of thing, which Bishop Bell was, was speaking against. Mm. Uh, of course, that goes against one of the criteria of the just war, which yeah. is discrimination, that you discriminate between... Uh, competence and non-competence mm. as far as you can and mm. that simply didn't and I think Bell was right to speak out against it he and made I'm himself afraid, very unpopular he but. did and I'm afraid Temple didn't speak out against it because Temple's argument was that the sooner you get the water to an end the better mm-hmm. um, and I think he he wasn't entirely consistent in, in his with argument the just, with the just war yeah. war with the just yeah. war, war yeah. criteria yes mm. but it comes down to again this is the question that is within the just war tradition as to what is the goal of the of the conflict and and um, again, I think one of the points in the whole two kingdoms uh, theology is this thing of you know whose defence is at stake and you know, who are we fighting for here and and there is this distinction that's made within that tradition between you know if I am attacked well I you know as a, as an individual Christian I do not fight back you know I turn the other cheek that's that's clearly the teaching of Jesus but it's different when someone else is being attacked then I have the responsibility particularly if I'm a, a if I'm a sort of a chosen elected. Um, figure within a society to step in and stop that that happening and on that basis there is a a a valid reason for um conflicts where it is defending the the um, safety and the rights and the um the well-being of a particular group of people who otherwise would have those taken away from them but then that does raise the question of why do we fight wars and i think now we're getting into an era where some of the big ideological conflicts of sort of communism and um, free market economies may not be the the main thing that are that are that are that wars are being fought over, but we're talking about resource wars a lot of the time now. You know, fighting over scarce resources. You know, the, the oil supplies in in certain parts of the world are crucial to the survival of, of Western economies. Now, how far that has influenced the Gulf War, the Iraq War, is a very very interesting question. I think. I mean, one of the points Oliver Donovan makes in his very good, I think, little book on the on the just war revisited, uh, is that the, the just war theory in its Christian versions has never actually said that self-defense is a good enough reason for going to war. Mm. Uh, so yep. the Luther kind of thing that, well, individuals don't retaliate, but countries can, mm. I think Oliver would say, actually, n- nobody can. Mm. Uh, what you're doing in a just war is not retaliating you're trying to put right a wrong you're trying to re-establish peace uh, and therefore you always act not as a party but as judge magistrate policeman 
Mm. And therefore, all that you do has to be consistent with that aim and with the re-establishment of peace. Mm. That's why it might be useful militarily to poison the water supply, but it's not uh, permissible because that would make the re-establishment of peace mm. and social order more difficult. Um, and, but that is part of the problem with all the wars that we're involved in at the moment is 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 one block of people assuming their right to be judge and to judge what is right and what is proper and what what, what leads to greater peace and and there isn't always agreement that there, about that, there, there really isn't I mean, and, the question asked about the iraq war and yes well the proper authority of course is one of the criteria mm. that you have to have a proper authority now what is that in an international context mm. um and that's one of the reasons why i'm easier with the justice of the first Gulf War than with the second, because there was a much wider coalition uh, of countries involved and a much larger number of local regional powers other Mm. than Western powers going in Mm. than there was in the second Gulf War. And I think that's part of the pointer towards the the fact that there's a a real question mark over the second Gulf War, it seems Mm. to me. To my mind, that's undoubtedly true. But it is goodness me you don't envy people who are in this position because i mean in a sense linking back to our first conversation um part of the issue is making the calculation yes and that is difficult enough in retrospect yep. yeah. yes. mm. wars tend to be fought in prospect yes. mm. not only do you not know the calculation mm. but you don't know in actual fact whether use your contentious example poisoning the water you know, perhaps you could make an argument that that would bring the, um, uh, the the conflict to a swifter conclusion, which would re-establish. Now, you know, yeah. there are a myriad of different things going mm. on then, and you can find yourself slowly kind of creeping into less and less ethically tenable mm. positions. Mm. Yeah. And of course, the Old Testament has a thing about not cutting down trees mm. in warfare. It's mm. precisely the same mm. thing uh, that you don't destroy the the, li- the livelihood mm. and the resources of that community that, to which you are trying to re-establish peace. And exactly, as you say, uh, it's a hugely complicated decision. I think at the time of the choice as to whether to go to war in Iraq, I think a lot of people were just genuinely, it was a very, very difficult call to make. What would be the outcome of that war? Now, you look back on it and you think, maybe it wasn't the wisest thing because we now know what came out of that and maybe we can say, well, we should have been able to foreseen that. But that's, that's where the just war tradition is quite useful for us because it does provide us with a framework for thinking, well, you know, does this conflict meet these these criteria? If it doesn't, maybe we should hold back. And perhaps there are a lot fewer just wars than we imagine there to be. And in fact, probably there are very few wars that are just. It's not saying there aren't just wars. Wars can be fought justly. Well, in a sense, the evil against which you're com- combating has to be so spectacularly bad yep. to justify our particular case in point the, mm. the, the, the mm. bereavement and the grief and the death and the social disorder and the social disorder yep. and the just yeah just to go through the criteria a little bit can i because with the reference to the art of i think i think you know the just cause thing i think you know it was there was a just cause there assuming that they assumed that there were weapons of mass destruction which um, turned out not to be the case, but it's a just cause if there were proportionality. They tried to be, um, propor- you know, pro- use proportionate force. There was a fair chance of success. They tried to discriminate between competence and non-competence. The, the two problem ones, it seems to me, are, are a the proper authority because they didn't get the United Nations mm. special <laughs> resolution on on the issue. And more significantly, I think, was the last resort. It has to be the last resort. Mm. And there was Hans Blix saying, "Give us more time." Um, and they didn't. Mm. 
And I think that, for me, was where, where it sank. But um, I, I think also, Mike, I'm not sure that, that the chance of success was properly thought through because I don't know that yeah, anybody yeah. ever properly identified what we were going to war for. Yes. Um, and, I mean, was it simply to get rid of weapons of mass destruction? Was mm. it to get rid of Saddam Hussein? Was it to um, build a democratic society in Iran? And I think people went in with very different mm. aims, none of them properly defined, oh. which made success impossible. Mm. If you don't know what you're actually trying to achieve, you can't mm. succeed, can you? Or even having thought through what the likely outcome would be of removing Saddam Hussein Indeed. and actually the, the, yeah. the basically tribal warfare that's, that's just engulfed the whole place since then. Um, we have but can run I, can out of time. About the, um, Very quickly, somebody who who works in the, in the force, you know, is is a soldier. Um, up to a point, their job is to do what they're told. Mm. It's up to those who we elect to make those decisions. To make those decisions. Mm. So to say that we have question marks about whether this was a just war is not to impugn what they did or what they exactly. yeah. Uh, yeah. been involved in, or to cast any blame upon them. I think it's quite important that we say yeah. that. Um, it's simply to try and hold our political masters to account for yes, decisions fine. that they made. Good. Well, thank you, everybody, for um, yeah, an interesting half an hour's debate. Um, thank you especially, Nick, for coming in. Thank you. Um, Nick, if people want to find out more about Theos, where do they go? To our website, which is www.theosthinktank, it's all one word, .co.uk. Brilliant. And it's a very good That's website. T-H-E-O-S. That's right. Um, and it does give you lots of very interesting um, links to debates that are on in the newspapers and on radio and TV around the whole area of religion and public life, which is a fascinating area and one which is becoming more and more important rather than less important as oh, time goes right. on. Yeah. So thank you very much, Nick. And thank you, Mike and Jane. It's a we will um, see you all again soon. Hopefully Jane's cold will have gone. And, I did well. Um, I didn't sneeze all the way through. That's right, you didn't. You did pretty well without the sneezing. burst in the attempt. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a little story, really, about uh, since we've been talking about just war theory and army and soldiers, uh, this is a, a soldier joke. Uh, there was a particular uh, soldier who was on, on parade and the general came to inspect them. Uh, and he was marching down, making kind of derogatory remarks about their appearance and that kind of the general sloppiness. Uh, and picked out this person and pointed his baton at him and said, There's a piece of filth at the end of this baton. <laughs> and the soldier said, Not at this end, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that was Godpod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.